extend a welcome to you. Just still ruminating over the Sunday school lesson. <laughs> Good Sunday school lesson. Uh, so cows aren't the only thing that ruminate. Um, one of the things I thought about, you know, the subtleness of the whole thing. You know, when, when Jacob's family went down to Joseph, you know, what to take along back home? What to take home? Sacks of grain. Now, I don't know if Egypt progressed 400, there were 400 years in Egypt, wasn't it? 400 years, I think. Is that right? 400 years? So I don't know if Egypt's diet had progressed that much up to the leeks and the onions and the garlics and the melons in that time. Or were they satisfied with the grain, the corn, uh, wheat, whatever it was? Uh, but, you know, I can imagine living in the culture, you know, what, what took place. Probably their taste buds were assimilated into the Egyptian tastes. And another thing I thought about, well, if that leeks and onions and garlics were so important, why didn't they grab bags of them that night take them along? You know, they were just ready to get out of there with their life. And so it's perspective, it's focus, and I think we, we covered all that in the uh, Sunday School lesson very, very adequately. I was very uh, challenged. Now I lay me down to sleep. I pray thee, Lord, my soul to keep. If I should die before I wake, I pray thee, Lord, my soul to take. Before you shut your eyes, go to sleep. I'm not giving you a license to do that this morning. How many of you children pray that little prayer? Have ever prayed that little prayer? Any of you children ever pray that prayer? Now I lay me down to sleep. One brave little, oh, few soul. Get them higher. Higher. Oh, we got stiff elbows this morning. All right, adults. How many of you remember praying that as a child? Wow. I'm not so different. I prayed that for as a child. And as I studied and prepared for my message this morning, I, I thought of that prayer. And uh, I, I know our children prayed it. At least that's what it started out at. And then pretty soon it starts getting added, you know, the, the grandpas and the, the aunts and uncles and the cousins and the pets and whatever else. So this was, that was just the first verse, and then there was a second verse and a third verse. And, and, uh, but, you know, it's, it's an interesting little prayer. It's said that President John Adams is said to have prayed this prayer every night before he went to bed. So I guess if a president can pray it, it's certainly, uh, we certainly can pray it. It's found in print first in Thomas Fleet's New England Primer, dated way back to 1737. So it's an old prayer. It's been around for a long, long time. Think about that little prayer just for a little bit. You know, some of the content of that prayer. There's you. There's you this morning in that prayer. Now I lay me down to sleep. And you stop and think about that concept. There is nobody else in the whole world like you. I've thought about that different times as I went through the different stages of life. You know, there, there's only me. I mean, there's, there's nobody else exactly like me. Uh, you know, there's, the DNA testing is 99.9% accurate, I think it is. Uh, you know, what's the likelihood that I'd find there's people that look like me? I had a man show up at work one morning, told me at Conestoga Wood there. He said, uh, my boss told me, he said, hey, he said, I saw your picture on the billboard the other day. And uh, he said, look just like you. And it was a, unfortunately, it was a military advertisement. And uh, he, uh, he said, that sure looks like you. And I did see it later. There was some 
likeness, I guess, but uh, I didn't think it looked like me, but he thought it did. He, he thought I was promoting some wrong things there. But uh, anyway, so there's, there's you in that prayer. And then there's the Lord. That really adds dimension. There's you and the Lord. And uh, you're trusting Him. It's He that brought you into existence. It's Him you're trusting your life to. Then there's, it mentions your soul. Now, I can't see your soul this morning. You can't see my soul this morning. But you know, there is someone that can see your soul. God sees your soul. Each one of us here, from the youngest, from Lakeland to whoever's the oldest one is here, every one of us here has a soul this morning. There's no, we may have physical deformities, we may have extremities perhaps amputated or cut off or whatever the case may be. But, you know, everyone has a soul. We're totally there. It's that portion of us that will live on throughout eternal, uh, throughout eternity. That soul is that part of us that will go into eternity. Then it mentions the aspect of life and death. And uh, that's what brought me to my meditation here this morning. You know, I, I've transversed a fair amount of life. You know, I, I haven't experienced it all. There's a lot of things in life I haven't experienced. But, you know, through the different stages of life from childhood up into grandparenthood. And, uh, you know, I don't know what, how many years are left in my life yet. But, you know, I, I've, trans, I've, trans, uh, I've crossed over a fair amount of territory in life. But as, as to death, I, I'm just an observer. I have never personally, I can't tell you really a lot about death other than what I've observed. I'm not a firsthand, I haven't experienced it firsthand. Nobody left, nobody here this morning can talk about it because when we're dead, we're gone. We might wonder where I'm going with this. My message this morning is, What Then? That's the title of my meditation, What Then? And I'm calling it part two of the Upper Room Fellowship. And I don't know if you remember or not, but I, I mentioned the last time I preached was, was the Upper Room Fellowship that Jesus had with his disciples, where he had the Last Supper and instituted the First Communion Supper with his disciples. And I mentioned that there's two other Upper Room experiences in the life of, the, the, of Jesus' disciples and his followers. And this is the second one, where he uh, showed himself to his disciples confirmed that there is life after death. And the third one had to do with the, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. So this morning I want to look at what then. I really hadn't anticipated this to be a series, but again, as I thought about that, I thought, well, you know, it might be only appropriate that we, we look at that second upper room experience. And as I was thinking about that upper room experience, that, that upper room fellowship that he had there with his disciples, you know, I wonder if, if in their minds they were thinking, you know, what, what now? After Christ had been crucified... One of the thoughts that, that entered my mind as I meditated on the experience there with Jesus, with his disciples, was, uh, you know, can anyone really disturb our upper room fellowship with Jesus Christ? You know, we're the imperfect part of fellowship, right? We're all agreed on that. Christ is perfect. God is perfect. We're here together as a group of people that are fellowshipping together. We're that imperfect part. We're not going to always raise our hand when we, should, when we think it should be raised. Everybody's not going to always raise their hand when it should be raised. Not everybody's going to always think the same. So it's that imperfect part. As I thought about Jesus there, as he uh, broke bread with his disciples, I thought about the, the variation of the personalities that were there. And uh, uh, I concluded that really um, 
You know, as I think about, can anyone disturb my upper room fellowship, my relationship between God, I want to say it this way. I want to say with a big no. I don't think anyone can really disturb my upper room fellowship. But I will say you can maybe answer with a little yes. Only if you allow them to. Only if you allow them to. I think that's the way we need to look at it. You know, Judas was there. I thought about this as Jesus, for at least a seemingly a portion of that experience there in the upper room fellowship. And you know, the disciples were disputing, you know, who was going to sit somewhere along there. I'm not exactly sure of all the chronological time-wise there, but they were disputing who would be the greatest in the kingdom of God. They were sometimes disputing who would be on the right hand or the left hand. And, you know, so they had their problems. They did, just like we do. We don't always think exactly alike. But does that need to disturb my fellowship with Jesus Christ? First Thessalonians 4, verses 13 through 18. You know, if you remember when I depicted on the board up here the last time, I had stairs going up to the upper room fellowship. This morning I'd like to suggest in our experience of the upper room fellowship, we don't have stairs going up. Look what it says here in First Thessalonians 4, breaking it at verse 13. First Thessalonians 4, verse 13. But I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, that ye sorrow not, even as others which have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not prevent them which are asleep. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. I guess one of the other aspects that I was going to mention that got me thinking about, I don't know how often you think about it, but Ascension Day was a week from Thursday, a week past, May uh, 25th, I believe the day was. And uh, so that was 40 days after Easter. And as I thought about that in relation to our experience here, how the Lord ascended up, and there we have it described there in, in the uh, Scripture text there. So what then? Turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 23. I'd like to begin reading at verse 46. Luke 23, verse 46 through the end of the chapter. And when Jesus had cried with a loud voice, he said, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. And having said thus, he gave up the ghost. Now when the centurion saw what was done, he glorified God, saying, Certainly this was a righteous man. And all the people that came together to that site, beholding the things which were done, smote their breasts and returned. And all his acquaintances and the women that followed him from Galilee stood afar off, beholding these things. And behold, there was a man named Joseph, a counselor, and he was a good man and just." 
The same had not consented to the counsel and deed of them. He was of Arimathea, a city of the Jews, who also himself waited for the kingdom of God. This man went unto Pilate and begged the body of Jesus, and he took it down and wrapped it in linen and laid it in a sepulcher that was hewn in stone, wherein never man was before was laid. And that day was the preparation, and the Sabbath drew on. And the women also which came with him from Galilee followed after and beheld the sepulcher and how his body was laid. And they returned and prepared spices and ointments and rested the Sabbath day according to the commandment. You know, think with me this morning. I don't know if that caught your attention or not. In verse 49, verse 48, it says all the people that came together to that site, those people that were sideline observers beholding the things that were done, smote their breasts and returned. And then in verse 49, all his acquaintances and the women that followed him from Galilee stood afar off beholding these things. Notice what they had just witnessed. Notice what they had just seen. They had seen their friend, their leader, uh, crucified in a most cruel and brutal way. I'd like to just read a poem that Pam shared with me just recently in regards to Easter. Glorious jewel-studded crosses keep reminding some of something deep. What he gave or what we get, do we think that it's well met with how the Savior really died on gilded cross? No, they lied. The heavy, rough, degrading, crude, and lowly that cost committed criminals to walk slowly. With the object of their punishment, it gave deep slivers, whether cowardly or brave. And crooks out of the cross, excruciation by the King, the Lord of all creation, who refused to deaden his suffering and pain with the vinegar and the gall while being slain. Can we remember truly then without the gilded icons, Ken? We take the vinegar and the gall because to guilt we are in thrall unless we believe in the truth, that ancient promise from earth's youth. And that was our Lord's experience. He died on that cruel cross because of the sins of the world. They witnessed his burial. Life was gone. It was at an end. In probably their thoughts, in their thinking. And were they asking, what then? What after this? Did it seem so final? No more fellowship, no more upper room fellowship with their leader as they so much treasured it. The questions, the thoughts that were going through their mind. Did Isaiah 53 come to their minds? Did they connect the dots and understand that this was God's will, as was mentioned in the poem? That God did it willingly, gave his life because it was God's plan, God's will. I was also impressed with what it tells us about Joseph. Now, I mentioned, I think, the last time that we're not certain. And actually, I'm calling this an upper room experience. And in the King James Version here, it doesn't actually, if you go to all the accounts where Jesus appeared to his disciples uh, that Sunday evening of the resurrection, the ten disciples were together. Uh, it's recorded in Mark chapter 16, 14. I'm looking at the Luke account here, and John also records it in chapter 20, verses 9 through 19 through 25. And ten of the disciples were there. And uh, nowhere does it actually refer to as an upper room experience. It just refers to them as being together as disciples. And uh, it would seem logical to me. So I'm, this is just my logic that they were in that upper room where they had... You know, savoring that last fellowship with their 
with their leader, with their, with Jesus. And uh, I, the only place I get the upper room uh, thought on this account here is in my uh, NIV study Bible. It, it, it refers to it as the upper room. So I don't know if there's some Greek translation terminology that would give some credence to that or not. That I don't know. But then also, uh, a week later, now remember in that first account, Thomas was missing. And uh, so he, he uh, a week later, he was there with the disciples again in that seemingly that same room. And Jesus again appeared to them. And they, again, the NIV refers to that again Jesus meeting his 11 disciples in the upper room. So that's where I'm, I'm borrowing the, uh, the upper room experience from. <clears throat> but I was impressed with Joseph here. It says he was a man, a man named Joseph, a counselor. He was a good man and he was just. Now he was evidently part of the Sanhedrin council according to what we can learn about him. And uh, he, uh, it says also in verse 51 that he waited for the kingdom of God. What was his understanding of the kingdom of God? And uh, it says also in Francis that he had not consented to the counsel and the deed of them that had condemned Jesus to be crucified. And if you go back to the Mark account where we would read this same, uh, it says that all the council had agreed. So uh, we're deducting from that that probably Joseph of Arimathea was not, was absent from that council. Uh, again, that's a deduction we're making because... Uh, it says he was not consenting to that. Was Why was he absent? We're not sure. Uh, was it a meeting that was called out of the normal context of the typical meeting? That I'm not exactly sure on. Uh, maybe someone can enlighten me on that. But uh, nevertheless, Joseph was not consenting to the counsel and the deed of them. That had condemned Jesus to the death on, on the cross. But the... The impression I get from Joseph is he's so, uh, I don't know how to describe him. Uh, he seems so willing. Uh, he's, he comes and he's, he's a man of the, uh, of the R. And uh, as I thought about that, I thought, you know, people aren't great because of the great deeds they do. They're great because they did what they could. And I, I want to I practice that in my own life this morning. You know, people aren't great because of the great deeds they do, but they're great because they did what they could. And I think that sums up the life of Joseph. I think if you would ask him if he was doing something extraordinary great, I think he was just saying he, he's doing what needed to be done. And that, I believe, will, will stand us well as we go through life. Uh, don't worry about where the, where the credit goes. Don't worry about uh, who sh- who's not doing what should be done. But only do what you can do. And that's, that's what I see in the life of Joseph here, Joseph Armathia. He was a man that was willing to give and give and share. I'm guessing, according to history, that this probably may well have been his own tomb that he had prepared, perhaps, or a family tomb, perhaps. Uh, but yet he gave so willingly to his, his uh, master. And I believe indeed he was a believer. I thought of the, uh, as I thought about the uh, life and death, what then? I thought of Longfellow's poem, Tell me not in mournful numbers, life is but an empty dream, for the soul is dead that slumbers, and things are not what they seem. Life is real, life is earnest, and the grave is not its goal. 
Dust thou art, to dust returnest, was not spoken of the soul. Not enjoyment and not sorrow is our destined end or way, but to act that each tomorrow finds us further than today. Art is long, time is fleeting, and our hearts, though stout and brave, still like muffled drums are beating, funeral marches to the grave. In the world's broad field of battle, in the vile arc of life, be not like dumb driven cattle, be a hero, be a hero in the strife. Trust no future, however pleasant. Let the dead past bury its dead. Act, act in the living present, heart within and God o'erhead. Lives of great men all remind us we can make our lives sublime, and departing leave behind us footprints on the sands of time. Footprints that perhaps another sailing o'er life's solemn main, a forlorn, a forlorn and shipwrecked brother, seeing shall take heart again. Let us then be up and doing with a heart for any fate, still achieving, still pursuing, learn to labor and to wait. Appreciated the words of that poem. Puts life in perspective. Why, if you turn to the account in John 20, verse 17, remember we were talking about Jesus' confirmation of life after death to his followers, to his disciples. In John verse 20, verse 17, we find the first uh, account of Jesus revealing himself, I believe, to his disciples. And I mentioned already, I think, in the past, that I find it interesting that it was, for, it was to a woman, Mary, who was a very, very uh, devout disciple of Jesus. Um, and I'll break in here. Verse 11, But Mary stood without the sepulcher, weeping. And as she wept, she stooped down and looked into the sepulcher. And seeing... Pardon me. And looked into the sepulcher, and seeth two angels in white sitting, the one on the head, the one at the head, and the other at the feet, where the body of Jesus had lain. And they say unto her, Woman, why weepest thou? And she saith unto them, Because they have taken away my Lord, and I know not where they have lain him. So his body was gone. The last physical attachment that he had, that she had, was gone. It was gone. The tomb was empty. And I think she was distraught about that. Rightly so. She was not comprehending that he had resurrected. We know where the body of Jesus had lain. But he was gone. Verse 14, And when she had thus said, she turned herself back and saw Jesus standing, and knew not that it was Jesus. Why didn't she know it was Jesus? I'm not exactly sure. Um, you know, when he walked on the road to Emmaus, Jesus did later in the day, it seems like it uses a word description. I believe John records this. It says their eyes were withholding, that they shouldn't know him. Why didn't Mary know Jesus? Um, was she so overcome with grief? Um, what, was, what was his body like? There evidently was enough of similarity that uh, some didn't have trouble recognizing him. The disciples in the upper room recognized him. And I guess what I was going after is here, um, as Jesus conversed with her there, Jesus, verse 15, saith unto her, Woman, why weepest thou? Whom seekest thou? Jesus reaching out with compassion and love, trying to console her. She's supposing him to be the gardener, saith unto him, Sir, if thou have borne him hence, tell me, where thou hast laid him, and I will take him away. She was going to do what she could do. Could have she taken him away? 
Probably not on herself. Probably not on herself. She'd have to get some of her friends. But she was going to do what she could do. And I, I, I admire her courage. And then verse 16, Jesus saith unto her, Mary. And she turned herself and saith unto him, Rabboni, which is to say, Master. And then verse 17, Jesus saith unto her, Touch me not, for I am not yet ascended to my father. But go to my brethren and say unto them, I ascend, I ascend unto my father and your father and to my God and your God. That message comes to us this morning that God, Christ, is ascending to our father. Mary Magdalene came and told the disciples that she had seen the Lord and that he had spoken these things unto her. Why did Jesus tell Mary not to touch him? Uh, and then he invites Thomas later. He says, well, you know, reach out and touch me. <laughs> the nail prints. And see my feet. He instructs the disciples to observe his feet. So there was some uh, enough of similarity there in his suffering in his body that they should have recognized him, possibly. Uh, Mary didn't seem to recognize him, but she did seem to recognize his voice. Um, I don't know that I have the answer. Some of the commentators had this thought, and I'm not sure even who the commentator was. Um, they say, going back to the original Greek here, in, in the account here in, uh, in John 20, where Jesus told Mary not to touch him, was it would have the idea that he was telling Mary, you, you can't cling to my physical body. We've got to get beyond this, <laughs> this clinging relationship. And uh, whereas when he talked to the disciples there in the upper room, he was simply confirming his physical resurrection. And uh, the relationship is not, the terminology is a different Greek word that he was confirming, he was telling them to observe his nail prints and the, and the nail prints in his feet. And uh, so there was a different level of, of relationship talked about there is, is what the original Greek would talk about. Again, I, I'm not a Greek scholar, so I can't confirm that. But it would make sense to me that, that he, was, he was encouraging Mary that we, we need to get beyond this relationship of, of just simply being together. It's, it, our relationship needs to be more than that. Even when we're absent, I'm going to be ascending. Jesus knew what was ahead for him. He was not going to be here in bodily presence that much longer, 40 days longer. How was she going to survive then without the physical presence of Jesus Christ? There was something better in store that Jesus had for us. <clears throat> so what does this hold for you and I as disciples, Christians today? Where do I fit into the picture? I think it's understandable that we ask that question. But you know, like I said, we're just simply observers of, of death. No, I have never experienced it. None of us here have ever experienced death. I liked one writer's thought. He said this, you know, it's, it's, it's no more, it's, it'd be a parallel to like a small child understanding adulthood. Uh, you know, a small child doesn't understand what it's like to be an adult. We don't understand we're physically, you know, aged, but we're not immortal. Can we understand immortality? Can I understand that? I, I can't get my, my mind around that immortality. Uh, he also likened it to uh, as a person being blind, as, you know, trying to help them to understand the different colors. How do you describe the different colors to somebody that's blind? 
It's a little bit like that with immortality, I believe. How do we describe it? Well, Scripture does give us some, some details. It does tell us that we will be with God forever. It does tell us that all those who trust in Christ will find it to be an immersely enjoyable life. We will enter into our Master's happiness, and in His presence there are pleasures forevermore. We will never be bored, for we find finite things will always have new things to learn and enjoy about God's infinite goodness. Am I cultivating that today in my spiritual life? Or am I lusting after the leeks and the onions and the garlics? I thought about the verses there in Philippians. You know, and that comes back to Paul writing to the Philippians there. He said, whose God is their belly? You know, we, we tend to be so earthly minded. And, you know, we, 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 we like the things that taste good. We like the things that are pleasurable. We like the things that are enjoyable. But how do we cultivate spirituality? How do I cultivate spirituality in my life? I believe it's meditating on God's Word. I believe it's praying. I believe it's uh, having a clear understanding of what God's will is for my life. 1 John, Scripture tells us that when Christ returns, and also the verses that I read there in 1 Thessalonians, 1 John verse three, verse, chapter 3, verse 2 tells us that, that when Christ returns, we will be like Him. As he had a resurrected body, our bodies will be like him. Turning to the resurrection chapter in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, what does this have for us as followers of Christ, followers of disciples of Christ? 1 Corinthians 15, very familiar passage of Scripture. I'm going to read the entire chapter picking out just a few thoughts that may be at the end. My moreover brethren, verse 1, moreover brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I have preached unto you, which also ye have received, and wherein ye stand, by which also ye are saved, if ye keep in memory what I have preached unto you, unless ye have believed in vain. For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again on the third day according to the Scriptures, that he was seen of Cephas, and then of the twelve. After that he was seen of above five hundred brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain unto this present. But some are fallen asleep. After that he was seen of James, then of all the apostles. And last of all he was seen of me, also of one born out of due time. For I am the least of the apostles, that I am not meet to be called an apostle, but because I have persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace which was, which was bestowed upon me was not in vain." But I labored more abundantly than they all. Yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. Therefore, whether it were I or they, so we preach, and so ye believed. Now if Christ be preached that he arose from the dead, how say some among you that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there be no resurrection of the dead, then is Christ not risen. And if Christ be not risen, then is our preaching vain, and your faith is also vain. Yea, and we are found false witnesses of God, because... We have testified of God that he raised up Christ whom he raised not up. If so be that the dead rise not. For if the dead rise not, then is not Christ raised. And if Christ be not raised, your faith is vain. Ye are yet in your sins, then they which are fallen asleep in Christ are perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all, we are of all men most miserable. But now is Christ risen from the dead and become the firstfruits of them that slept. For since by man came death, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, 
Even so, in Christ shall all be made alive. But every man in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, and afterwards they that are Christ at his coming. Then cometh the end, when he shall have delivered up the kingdom of God, even the Father, when he shall have put down all rule and all authority and power, for he must reign till he hath put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. For he hath put all things under his feet, but when he saith all things are put under him, it is manifest that he is accepted which did put all things under him. And when all things shall be subdued unto him, then shall the Son also himself be subject unto him that put all things under him, that God may be all in all. Else what shall they do which are baptized for the dead? If the dead rise not at all, why are they then baptized for the dead? Why stand we in jeopardy every hour? I protest by your rejoicing, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die daily. If, I d if, uh, if after the manner of men I have fought with the beasts at Ephesus, what advantageth it me? If the dead rise not, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Be not deceived, evil communications corrupt good manners. Awake to righteousness and sin not, for some have not the knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. But some man will say, How are the dead raised up? And with what body do they come? Thou fool. That which thou sowest is not quickened, except it die. And that which thou sowest, thou sowest not that body that shall be, that shall be, but bare grain. It may chance of wheat or of some other grain, but God giveth it a body as, as it pleaseth him, and to every seed his own body. All flesh is not the same flesh, but there is one kind of flesh of men, another flesh of beasts, another of fishes, and another of birds. There are also celestial bodies and bodies terrestrial, but the glory of the celestial is one, and the glory of the terrestrial is another. There is one glory of the sun, another glory of the moon, another glory of the stars. For one star differeth from another in the glory. So also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown in corruption. It is raised in incorruption. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. There is a natural body and there is a spiritual body. And so it is written, the first man Adam was made a living soul. The last Adam was made a quickening spirit. Howbeit that was not first which is spiritual, but that which is natural, and afterwards, afterward that which is spiritual. The first man is the earth, earthy, and the second man is the Lord from heaven. As is the earthy, such are they also that are earthy. And as is the he, as is the heavenly, such are they also that are heavenly. And as we have borne the image of the earthly, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly. Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, neither doth corruption inherit incorruption. Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, for the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and shall be changed, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible shall have put on incorruption, and this mortal shall have put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as, we, for as, much as ye know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Talking about what is in it for us today, we are saved if we keep in memory. We need to be reminded daily of what God has done for us. It mentions it there in verse 2. Um, just picking a few of these out. It says, verse 10, about the grace of God working in our lives. It's only by the grace of God that we can experience uh, the redemptive power of God in our lives. Uh, we are called to be witnesses of his resurrection there in verses uh, 
13 and 14, in contrast to those who are saying there is no resurrection. <clears throat> Talks about verse 33, be not, be not deceived, evil communications corrupt good manners. Uh, awake to righteousness and sin not, for some have not the knowledge of God. And I speak this to your shame. We need to avail ourselves of the opportunities that are ours in uh, separating ourselves from those that would corrupt uh, our lifestyle. Um, it talks about the uh, it is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. Uh, verse 49, as we have borne the image of the earthly, so shall we also bear the image of the heavenly. And that's something that we can look forward to. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, the last trump, for the trumpets shall sound, the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. Um, again, we'll have a body. I can't describe it. Even though we can't describe it, does that make it any less plausible? No, it doesn't. Um, but thanks be to God, which giveth us the victory. I was thinking about the, uh, you know, in Jesus' time, the... Uh, you know, the resurrection of the body and, and, and why does it matter. It talks about the his body was, was taken, was absent from the tomb. Um, his resurrected Jesus had a resurrected body. It was evidently a body that had some similarities to to give recognition. Uh, although it did seem that he had some extraordinary properties. He could he could appear and disappear. Um, I came across an interesting thing, and I'm still thinking about this, but I'll just throw it out for, for your thought. Uh, and I'm not sure about the chronological uh, experience of this. Uh, one of the writers talked about Jesus walking in the water, whether that was a post-resurrection experience or not. You know, you read it in the context. I always thought it was a pre-resurrection experience. Uh, he said it would seem, the setting would seem almost more post-resurrection when the disciples were crossing the sea there. And uh, Peter called out to him and said, "If it be you, can, you know, let bid me come to you." And he, of course, uh, was trying to come to Jesus and began to sink when he looked at the waves about him. But uh, so that was, that was, I'm not sure. I, I haven't. I'm still thinking about that. I don't know if there's any way you can prove that one way or the other. But uh, I will give them credit that it does seem somewhat post-resurrection for them that he appeared and then, but he did stay there with them after that. At least it seems that way. So. Uh, One of the things we, uh, you know, we might say, why bother with a body physically after we're uh, after the resurrection? If you look at some of the verses in the scripture, I was challenged with these thoughts that, uh, you know, God is not really uh, abandoning the physical aspects of this world. He's, he talks about a new heaven, a new earth, uh, and so we have to have bodies to dwell in that new heaven, a new earth. Uh, you know, the Romans eight twenty one talks about the physical creation. Uh, groaning in travail and uh, being liberated from the bondage of, of the sinful nature of it, of this world and the culture in which we live. And uh, in Romans 8.23 talks about our bodies being redeemed. And uh, so we will have bodies. I can't necessarily describe what all is the, the details of that body, but it will be like him. We will be like him. That we can tell. Uh, I was thinking about the uh, idea of the Sadducees too. You know, they, they didn't believe in a resurrection. And you might say, well, why, why even 
if there's no life after death, why even bother about any kind of spirituality, any, any form of a religious uh, uh, significance? And, uh, you know, in the Scripture, we look at the Pharisees. They were the strict, conservative, we might say, teachers of the law, adding laws to it. And the Sadducees were kind of a, a right-wing group. And Adam Clark has had this to say about them. He says that the Sadducees were mostly composed of politicians. I thought that was interesting. Uh, they were in it for the political gain of it all. Uh, their origin and their name had to do with their one of their previous leaders, Sadoc. And uh, he was president of the Sanhedrin, a teacher of the law in one of the great divinity schools in Jerusalem, dating back to about 264 years before the incarnation of Christ. And the lectures, uh, his scholars, they were taught that they should not serve God through expectation of a reward, but through love and filial reverence only. Uh, he inferred that from this teaching they were neither, there were neither rewards nor punishment in the afterlife, and by consequence there was no resurrection of the dead, nor angels, nor spirits, and that's documented in the scripture, in the invisible world, and that man is to be rewarded or punished here in this life for the good or evil that he does. They actually only received only the five books of Moses and rejected all the unwritten traditions from every account that we have of this sect. It plainly, it plainly appears that they were the kind, this is, Matthew, this is uh, Adam Clark, it plainly appears they were a kind of deitist and professed materialist. I thought that was interesting. And uh, one of the commentators went on to say, he says, they, uh, they were the materialists of the day. And considering all of God's promises as referring to this world, they looked upon poverty and distress as evidence of God's curse. Hence, to relieve the poor was to sin against God, interfering with his mode of government. Far fewer than the Pharisees, they were, their, they were rivals in power, for they were the aristocratic party and held the high priest and all high priest with all its glories, their high political position, their great wealth, and the Roman favor with which they courted by consenting to foreign rule and the pagan customs made them a body to be respected and also feared. However, it shouldn't be so confusing. People today are much the same, and I was challenged with that thought. We, are, we have politicians who claim to be Christians while living in an immoral life. The claim is made because it garners more votes as Christianity remains popular in the United States. You can also see it in the denominations. And then he goes on to quote, this is not Matthew Henry, this is another source, but it goes on to quote, it says, he says, in a recent uh, survey of Protestants, including Methodists, Lutherans, Presbyterians, and Episcopalians, he said that uh, only 35% of the mainline Protestants members believe that Christ was sinly, sinless. 34% believe the Bible is totally accurate. 27% agree that it that works don't earn heaven, and 20% believe that Satan is real. And uh, you know, so there's some statistics. As I thought about the the spiritual environment in which we, our Lord was uh, redeeming mankind, much like our time here today. And uh, as I thought about that, I, I couldn't help but think of the Sunday school lesson. You know, maybe it's time for us to move on. I don't know what uh, you know what the Lord has in store when the Lord is returning. But uh, we know that he, as he has left, so will he return. And uh, we could look there at the, uh, I wanted to look in closing at the uh, account there in Acts chapter 1. Verse 7, and he said unto them, it is not for you to know the times or the seasons. So it's not for us to know the times and the seasons either. 
what the Lord has in mind, which the Father has put in his own power. But ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and under the uttermost parts of the earth. And when he had spoken these things, when they beheld, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven, as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, which also said, Ye men of Galilee, why stand ye gazing up into the heaven? This same Jesus, which is taken up from you into heaven, shall so come in like manner as ye have seen him go into heaven. Challenge I want to leave with you this morning. You know, are we, is my life giving evidence of the resurrection? One of the thoughts that I, I had to uh, ask myself, questions I asked was, why didn't Jesus in his resurrected body uh, reveal himself to his enemies? You know, why didn't he go into the temple and begin preaching again? Uh, well, I think God's counting on you and I to be witnesses for him. He wants us to be preachers. He wants us to be, be the witness of his resurrection power. He could have certainly done that. But if you stop and think about it, there was actually ample evidence given to those of his enemies. Uh, the non-believing Romans and Jewish authorities, you know, the tomb, the rolled away stone, the guards, uh, the angel of the Lord descending, and then the angel sitting there and illuminating with a bright light. You know, and the guards being terrified, going back and giving their true account of what actually happened. And then coming up and fabricating a story that is so bizarre, unbelievable, and being rewarded for being telling the untruth. But yet God is calling on us to be the evidence in the world today. May God challenge us. May God help us to be that testimony of his resurrection.